he doesn't have a gigantic elbow brace on. Uh, yeah, he's moving. He's he's uh, he's running fast again. He's got great body control. Some of the things, the stiffness I saw uh, at the end of his career with all the injuries, uh, looks like it's gone. I, I I didn't know that he said that. The last thing he said to me was that I was in New England shape and that I'm not in Florida <laughs> shape. So uh, I'll take that. I'll take that compliment from him for sure. Bruce Arians and Rob Gronkowski, still strange to see Gronk, Tom Brady near that Buccaneers logo. But, you know, we, we talked about injured guys last hour. Gronk is a guy who's been injured throughout his career. I refer to him as Cavity Sam from time to time, the guy from the operation game, because he's had about every procedure you can imagine. He had the horrible arm injury that had multiple infections and multiple surgeries. He had a pick line at one point. It was that bad. Uh, and he continues to just keep going and going. And, yes, he took 2019 off, and it apparently has helped. For now, Shireen, he's healthy. He's looking good for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I think the real question is how aggressively will they use him, especially early in the season as they break him back in, because everyone's healthy until it's time to start playing the games. That's what makes guys not healthy is getting out there and being hit and dragged down to the ground and being shoved around. And, uh, you know, that's the concern. And uh, for now, though, Gronk uh, healthier than he's looked in years because he doesn't have that wear and tear, and uh, he seems to be happy in Tampa Bay, and it sure didn't seem like he was happy those last years in New England. I'm the idiot last week who said he was going to have 1,000 yards this season for the first time since 2017, so I hope he's out there and I hope he's playing. But it has been since 2011 that he's played a full season, but maybe the year off did do him good. The last time... He played two years ago. He played 75% of the snaps. I think that's probably somewhere along the lines of what the Bucs will look at. You know, we talked about taking days off during the week uh, of training camp. I think you're going to see veteran off days for him, too, during the season. Uh, he'll take probably a Thursday off or whatever it is and, and rest that body and, and make sure he's right for game day. But I do think the year off is going to do him good, and I think he's going to have a big season for the Bucks. Yes, they have a lot of tight ends there. I think they'll go with a lot of two tight end formations. But I think Grok's going to have a big year, and I think he's going to stay healthy this season. I mentioned last week the mental gymnastics I went through when they acquired Gronk technically in a trade with the Patriots because he still was under contract to them. He was on their reserve retired list. You have O.J. Howard. You have Cameron Braid. In comes Gronk. Well, O.J. Howard's getting traded. And that was my first reaction. And then I started thinking about it. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Gronk was extremely effective as a guy who was used more and more later in the season in 2018, he didn't have a big 2018 season with the Patriots to the point where we just kind of wrote him off. He's not the guy he used to be. Then came the postseason. Oh, and he's the guy he used to be. So I think they are going to ease him in. I think we aren't going to see him used extensively early in the season. Maybe they trade O.J. Howard or Cameron Brait in late October, and then that's when it becomes Gronk plus whoever's left with a push toward the postseason. But that's why I think it's not going to be the Gronk show right out of the gates. From his perspective, he addressed yesterday what his role will be, what his reps will be, how much work he will get. Here's Gronk addressing what he will actually be doing on the field for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I'll play the whole entire game if I have to. It's up to the coaches. Um, with the amount of playing time I get, it's up to the coaches with the amount of reps I get. 
Uh, I've just listened to my coach every single practice. Whenever he puts me in, he puts me in. Whenever he takes me out, he takes me out. I'm feeling good out there. My body feels good. Uh, that's why I came back to the game. Uh, and that's how I want to be moving. I want to be moving like how I was back in the day. Uh, sure. No doubt about that. Why, why else would I want to come back to the game and be moving like poop? <laughs> oh, he's a poet. <laughs> I just had a flashback. You know, he's the author of a book. Um, and and when he did his radio tour five years ago, I think it was now, and I gave him the chance at the end of the interview to make the pitch, Gronk, tell everyone out there why they should go buy your book. And his response was, you know, that's a good question. I'm not sure why they should buy the book. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the sequel coming up from Rob Gronkowski based upon his year in Tampa Bay. But, you know, Shereen, here's the thing. And – there were periodic points during his career where there was an obsession with how do you stop Rob Gronkowski because you can't. How, who You double-team him. Who do you double-team him with? Who can begin to slow him down? And the Patriots never really had the weapon around Rob Gronkowski that also had to be double-teamed. The Buccaneers have a guy in Mike Evans who needs to be doubled, and if Gronk is healthy and out there extensively, he needs to be doubled. Uh, they're going to have a hell of a time accounting for Evans and Gronk when both guys are on the field, which creates a greater temptation if you're the coach to tell Gronk, get your butt out there to create these mismatches that a defense isn't going to be able to deal with. And Chris Godwin, too. I mean, they are loaded. And you talked about the other two tight ends. Yeah, this is a team that you look across the board, it's going to be hard to double all the receivers and tight ends that you need to double as a defensive coordinator. I think it's going to be very, very difficult against this team. But back to your point of Florida versus New England, what he went through. The early games in Tampa are brutal. You know, it's it's humid there. I covered the Buccaneers. I lived there. It's it's brutal with the humidity. It's going to be different for him than it was in New England for those first few games that they have at home. And it extends into October. It's not just like it's the first game. You know, it's going to be the first two, three, four uh, home games that they have are going to be really hot and really humid. And maybe they do ease him in because of that. Uh, and get him ready. But as long as he's ready late in the season when it matters in the playoffs, because I do think this is a playoff team, especially with the expanded playoffs, I think he's going to be ready, and I think he's going to make a difference for the Bucs. When Tom Brady walks up to the line of scrimmage after 20 years' experience in the NFL, and he said after the win over the Falcons three-plus years ago in the Super Bowl, you can't show me anything I haven't already seen. He's going to walk up to the line. He's going to know, looking at the defense – whether they are shading toward Evans, shading toward Gronk, who's going to be open. He knows where the guy's going to be. He's going to get that ball out so fast. And if he gets it to one of these guys who's single covered, they're big. Evans and Gronk are so big, it doesn't matter if you got one guy on him. This has the potential to be a very, very good offense, a very, very good team. And however much they use Gronk, as long as Brady stays healthy, this team is going to be a factor in 2020 and has the chance to be one of the better teams, if not the best team in the NFC. All right, speaking of a new face in a new place, Phillip Rivers, after all those years with the San Diego, then Los Angeles Chargers, now the quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts. Here is Phillip Rivers talking about what he's trying to do to get the most out of whatever he has left in the tank as he joins a new team. I think the biggest thing for me is you could be myself, uh, but, but also – um, find that find that sweet spot. 
again, from, from aggressiveness and stupid and, um, you know, know, know what kind of game it's game it, it is and how the whole thing's coming together. And, uh, certainly have done that throughout my career in different years and different times. And, uh, don't see any reason why I can't do that again. I think that's very good life advice and it comes in handy when you have like 17 kids find that sweet spot between aggressive <laughs> and stupid. And the problem is, and you know, maybe this actually helps Philip rivers this year. Cause I just think the expectations for him, when you consider he's getting 25 million this year from the Colts, Brady's getting 25 million this year from the bucks. Drew Brees is getting 25 million this year from the saints. I think the expectations for him are lower than the other two. And a lot of the reason why it's so low is we saw more stupid than aggressive in primetime games last year. Seven interceptions in back-to-back primetime games. I can't get that out of my brain. And what it does is it puts a low bar, a lower bar for Phillip Rivers than it is for the other two guys. And, and maybe that actually sets him up well to surprise some people this season, Shereen. I was just thinking, boy, this is a team that's really flying under the radar because we haven't talked about the Colts much. We haven't written about the Colts much. They're just kind of there, but they do have a chance to win that division in the division that they're in. You know, you you look at the Texans and and you look at the Jaguars and the Titans. You know, the Titans went to the AFC Championship game, but can Tannehill duplicate what he did last year? Can Derrick Henry stay healthy? So when you look at this Colts team, you do think they have a chance to win that division, but I haven't thought a lot about the Colts uh, to be perfectly honest about it. And, and the question does become how much does Phillip Rivers have left? How are those legs? Um, he, he hasn't been hurt, but he did not look good last season. And maybe it was just his decision-making and maybe he will be a better decision-maker in Indianapolis than he was last season, the season for the Chargers. Yeah, I don't think it's something that a team can really engineer. It just has to happen. But a team has to love it when something like this naturally evolves where no one's paying attention to that team. Because what it does is it allows head coach Frank Reich to maybe use that as motivation. Hey, nobody's giving us any respect. Nobody thinks we're going to be great. And also at the same time, nobody's getting a swelled head because they don't hear everyone talking about Colts, 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 and the Colts are so good, and watch out for the Colts. And, and I think that, that combination is just, it's just another brick that gets put in the foundation for what can be a really good season, and we probably should be taking the Colts more seriously, and we should be not underestimating Phillip Rivers, because I think Phillip Rivers, even though he doesn't seem prideful per se, I think he's got enough pride that if he didn't think he could get it done, he wouldn't keep playing. The mere fact that he's on the Colts – tells us that he firmly believes he can play well and play better than we saw him play in those those primetime games with seven interceptions in back-to-back weeks. And uh, we, we better be ready for a Colts team to be a hell of a lot better than it was last year and to be a real factor in the AFC, Shereen. Yeah, and that defense looks really good, and that's why I think they have a chance. You know, T.Y. Hilton, is he going to stay healthy? That's a question there. But to me, the biggest question mark is Phillip Rivers. Is he going to make good decisions? Does he still have something left in the tank? I know he feels like he has something left to prove. Of course, never been to a Super Bowl. And I know he wants to get there, and that defense is ready to go to a Super Bowl. Is the offense ready to step up to match that? And we've always looked at the Colts when they've had a healthy Andrew Luck as a team to contend with. And, and I don't have that feeling that we're looking at the Colts now that way. And it's going to take Phillip Rivers stepping up to make that happen. It's just amazing. I just looked down at the calendar, August 21, 2020. 
Phillip Rivers is the starting quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts. If I had uttered that sentence on August 21, 2019, I would have been asked to provide uh, a sample for a drug test. Um, It's just amazing how quickly things change in the NFL, and we are still less than one year removed from Andrew Luck deciding out of the blue that he's going to call it a career. So uh, Phillip Rivers, we'll see what he can do. We'll see what the Colts can do. It should make for an interesting twist, especially since for now we're not paying attention. Come the end of September, we may be paying a lot of attention to the Colts. All right, let's take a break. We're going to pay some attention to one of the newest finalists for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You know, we've made it through an hour and 12 minutes without the clip of Drew Pearson pushing off on Nate Wright. I have a feeling that clip will be played when Drew Pearson joins us next on Pro Football Talk Live. Hoot, hoot. Let's get it on. means everything to be a Dallas Cowboy go to three Super Bowls, we become America's team. The Cowboys have had a history over the years with the Vikings. December 28, 1975, we had to go up there to play the team with the best record. It was about minus 10 degrees, kind of eerie type of atmosphere. I think we got 32 seconds left on the clock, and Roger says we got to take some shots in the end zone. Starback, he gets it, drops, he looks long. By that time, the ball was there. It hit my hands. It went through my hands. And because I was bent over, the ball ended up sticking between my elbow and my hip. He catches the ball! Touchdown, Dallas! I looked down and I said, oh, Lord, I done caught the Hail Mary. Incredible! Roger said, I threw the ball as far as I could. I closed my eyes and I said a Hail Mary. Next day in the Dallas newspaper, Cowboys win by Hail Mary. They think I'm the enemy of the state and I'm the guy that ruined their chances uh, to go to that Super Bowl. Ironically, after football, I flew in there, hailed the cab, and the cab driver recognizes me. He says, you're Drew Pearson, aren't you? I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, you better take the next cab, okay, because I'm not taking you anywhere. Just another reason for the city of Minnesota to hate the Dallas Cowboys. Great segment from last season when the Cowboys and the Vikings were playing on a Sunday night. And here he is now, Drew Pearson, one of the new finalists for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It was a long time coming, but finally, Drew, you're on the brink of getting in. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Oh, I'm great. I'm great. Thank you. Uh, It got me fired up watching that video. Bring on the Vikings. Where are those guys? Well, got me fired up too, Drew, because I remember it well as a 10-year-old who wasn't rooting for the Cowboys that day, who saw that play in real time and who who commenced crying, crying and bawling and squalling into the carpet for an hour after that game. So it brings back a lot of memories, not good memories, but it brings back a lot of memories. And Drew, I don't know if you know this, your name comes up every time Shireen's on. Your name comes up because they play that clip because she loved that moment as much as I hated it, so it all balances out. Well, this, let me say for you, it was a pleasure, okay? <laughs> Thank you, Drew. <laughs> yes, yes. But anyway, I'm the, I'm the fine, but I play. I hear about it almost every day. I hear the words Hail Mary almost every day. And, you know, everybody, I think the controversy, whether I push Nate Wright or not, uh, keeps the play alive. People continue to discuss that. Uh, but you see on that play right there, I'm just going for the football. And there's no uh, intentional contact. Uh, We're playing football out there, so there might be some contact. 
but I'm just going for the football in that situation. And luckily I was able to slow it up enough with my hands and uh, catch it between my elbow and my hip and threw it over the scoreboard because that's what all of us ex-quarterbacks do. We get any chance we can to throw the football. <laughs> and now, now Drew, I, I'm no expert in, in proper technique for a receiver, but I would, I would expect when <laughs> going go. to the football, that doesn't entail putting your hands into the lower back of the defensive back and shoving him onto the ground. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you can clear that up for me. Sir, Mike, it was a swim move. You heard of the swim move? With the <laughs> 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 defensive back. And in doing that, there was contact. But there was no deliberate push. If I really deliberately pushed him, he really would have fell, okay? <laughs> he, he fell with the contact. and uh, But you know what? Before that, we had a, what, fourth and 16? You know, two plays before yeah. that, we were able to hit on the sideline for, what, 22 yards or so in the first down to keep that drive going. Who do we hit that play on? Same cornerback. Oh, all I remember, yeah, we yeah, and, and all I remember right. is the – We knew who to go the guy who caught. The guy who caught that pass didn't land in bounds either. I can't remember who caught that pass, well, but he wasn't in bounds. Back then. Force out rule was in effect. You knew that. You know that. Nate Wright played in the league 13 years. He knew that rule as well. So uh, if he would have let me uh, get my feet in, you know I would have done that toe dance right there on the sideline. Charlene, <laughs> Charlene has seen that show, toe dance so many times running that out route on the sidelines in Texas Stadium. <laughs> Drew, I had the great pleasure of presenting you to, to the the 100-year uh, committee, and unfortunately you didn't get in then, but you are getting in now. And everybody talks about a Cowboys bias uh, for the Hall of Fame voters, and I don't think we can talk about that uh, now with so many Cowboys going in. Of course, Cliff Harris and, and Jimmy Johnson were in the class of 2020 in that centennial class. But do you think at one point there maybe was a Cowboys bias? You guys didn't beat the Steelers in those Super Bowls. Maybe if you had, things would have sped up for you a little bit. But do you think there was some of that there, or was it just the fact that you guys didn't beat the Steelers in those Super Bowls that, that maybe put more Steelers in, including Len Swan, who you had more catches then? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think they uh, created a, a bias, you know, uh, by saying things like, well, if you would have beat those Pittsburgh Steelers in, a, in those two Super Bowls, you'd have more Cowboys in the Hall of Fame. You know, what, what is that, you know? Uh, you don't judge it by that, I don't think. And then they also say, you know, uh, uh, the Cowboys, uh, too many Cowboys in the Hall of Fame and that type of thing, and let's uh, divide it up and, you know, spread it out a little more to other teams, uh, maybe so. But, you know, those kind of negative connotations – create the bias, I guess, within the room. And, uh, you know, we've always felt that there was a bias. And another reason we feel there's a bias against Cowboys is because there's so many deserving that aren't in. You know, I understand Chuck Halley was close in this selection for the senior uh, door this time around. And, you know, we got so many other Cowboys that are deserving. You take some of those guys, like a Harvey Martin, uh, and compare his record to some of the defensive ends uh, in the Hall of Fame, and it's very comparable, if not better. Not saying those guys aren't Hall of Famers, but if they are, then Harvey Martin is too. But there's other guys, even Clint Murchison. Look what his track record is as a contributor. And, uh, you know, he continues to not get in. So there might be a bias because there's so many of us uh, that could be eligible for that type of uh, 
type that type of honor. Well, one guy who was a no-brainer to get in was your head coach, one of the towering figures in NFL history, Tom Landry. Just he he just he exuded professionalism. He exuded ability, and it's amazing how long he held that job. Give us your best story from your years playing for Tom Landry. <laughs> well, I got a, quite a few. Some I could even tell on TV and and get away with, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Coach Landry, you know, the thing about it is I come from Tulsa, and uh, I had three head coaches in four years at Tulsa. So my mentorship as an adult, my adult mentorship wasn't that great. But now all of a sudden I'm with the Dallas Cowboys, and now my adult mentorship is Tom Landry. And I got in his back pocket pretty much, and tried to not just be a good football player and do what he wanted me to do out there on the football field, but be a professional as well. Uh, Coach Landry was the ultimate professional, the way he carried himself. Uh, and, you know, you saw him on the sideline dress. He didn't look like no football coach. He looked like a CEO, uh, more of a major corporation than a football team, a head coach of a football team. And so we tried to exude that, and I tried to exude that myself, learning from my mentor, Tom Landry. Then you got other mentors around you, of course, like Roger Staubach, Leroy Jordan, Bob Kel uh, uh, Bob Lilly, Mel, uh, uh, Bob Hayes, and people like that. But anyway, Coach Landry, uh, we used to tell, uh, he used to try to come into meetings and tell a little joke sometime uh, to try to loosen us up. But, you know, it never got, it never went over. You know, he would tell the joke and nobody would laugh. Everybody would be sitting there. <laughs> he couldn't understand that. But uh, we did throw him in the pool one time. We had a party, pool party, at the Royal Oaks Country Club in Dallas. And we got a little tip there. And uh, Coach Landry got in the mood as well. And uh, Cliff Harris and Charlie Waters were true veterans at that time. I was pretty much a rookie, so I had nothing to do with it. But they decided to grab Coach Landry and throw him in the pool, the swimming pool. And uh, to, hit, to our surprise, he handled it pretty well. We saw a smile on his face and everything. So, you know, that story has never been out. So I don't know if I should be telling that at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Drew, one of the things I pointed at. He doesn't know how to swim, okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. One of the things I pointed out in my presentation was how many great plays you had. We always point to the Hail Mary, and especially here on Fridays, we play it all the time. But you also had the catch from Clint Longley on Thanksgiving. You had the 83-yarder the against the Rams. I think it was the 73 playoffs. And then you had the, the playoff game, of course, against Atlanta when, when Danny White pointed and, and made the Falcons disappear, as they said, on, on NFL Films. But one play everyone forgets about is the play that followed the catch, which we consider one of the greatest plays in NFL history. But you almost broke that play which would have made the catch a footnote in history because the Cowboys would have won that game. And if there was a horse collar rule, I think they brought you down by the horse collar. Can you tell us about some, some of that play? Yeah, that was a, that was a big play. After they scored, we were, we, were, we were personally surprised that they drove on our defense the way they did to score that touchdown, capped by the catch by the late uh, Dwight Clark. God rest his soul. But, yeah, we come back, and, you know, Danny White's quarterback, and he had been in, uh, in that position for a couple of years, I think, at that point. But he was still trying to establish himself as the uh, quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, and he was trying to establish his own go-to guy as opposed to using Rodgers' go-to guy. But on the first play in that huddle, he wanted me to run an in route. I ran that in route, and running that route, 
I was double covered by Carlton Williamson and Ronnie Lott. And when Danny threw the ball, the ball went by them and I saw them collide with each other and hit me in the chest. And I knew, I figured at that point, if I'm double covered, there can't be nobody behind me. So I didn't expect Eric Wright to be there uh, behind me to make that uh, desperate attempt to tackle me that he didn't make. Uh, if I had known he was there, I could have done something to avoid that. But he grabbed me, and I felt the grab, and I tried to get away, but he reinforced the grab by grabbing the shoulder pads, and he was able to yank me down. And, guys, you know, even with my speed at that position on the field, I would have got at least 20 more yards, okay, to put us in a field goal <laughs> position to get, get the game-winning field goal. But, uh, you know, I'm, that play is uh, talked about quite a bit. Shireen, you mentioned all these plays, you know, scoring the touchdowns and win games. But the ones that mean more to me than anything are the, are the third down catches to keep drives going. Mm -hmm. You know, my 489 catches, I averaged 16 yards a catch. You know, every time I caught the ball, it was almost a first down. And those were the kind of things, going over that middle, making those tough catches. And they gave me more satisfaction because those defensive backs, when you go over the middle and make a catch like that and they see you and they start shaking their head, uh, you know you got them then. You know you got them then. Drew, the game has changed dramatically over the past 40 years. The explosion of passing offense, the passing yardage, the receivers with well over 1,000 yards every year. That leads to our trivia question. Tell us who the last player was to lead the league in receiving with fewer than 1,000 yards. That couldn't have been me. Was that me? Oh, uh, not yet. Yeah, yeah, go with your instinct. It was you. 1977, 870 yards. That was, of course, right before the game really opened up the passing game. Do you ever think about how much more prolific your numbers would have been if you had played in the era where the rules were skewed toward uh, passing the ball and receivers really showing what they can do? Absolutely. I would think they would be a lot better if Mel Blunt didn't play in the league. <laughs> <laughs> he got me down pretty good, unfortunately. But yeah, there's no question, you know, with the with the rules and the one bump and getting downfield. Uh, and not only that, guys, with the rule changes and that, but the quality of defensive back is just not the same as what I played against. You know, I played against Hall of Famers and guys like that. And you played against those guys each and every year. You know, sometimes in an 11-year career, you played against the same guys for 11 seasons. And so it made it a little more difficult to play. But if, you, if I could play in, uh, in a league nowadays with these rules, the type of movement and things that they do, the type of defenses that they play uh, nowadays, and the lack of quality cornerbacks, in the National Football League, defensive backs, period, in the National Football League. And I don't know why that is. Maybe the receivers have gotten better, and maybe it looks that way because they're throwing the football a lot more. But, you know, I just see a lack of quality as far as the coverage of the cornerbacks. And there's this – I see so many things, even with Coach Landry's offense, that I can implement in today's game with these rules and really have some success. We had success with the with the rules we were back in the day, but with these rules with Coach Landry's offense, we probably even had more success. 
You know, Drew, when I was a kid, I used to get up on my A-frame swing set and, and I would practice my play-by-play. -play. I'd pull the little cap off so I could hear it reverberate. And it was Roger Staubach to Drew Pearson. I think you guys scored. I don't know how many exactly you scored. But when I was doing the play-by-play, -play, it was at least 500 touchdowns that you guys made. What was your favorite <laughs> touchdown? I don't know if you're going to say the Hail Mary or not, but did you have a favorite touchdown in your career? Yeah, and you mentioned it uh, earlier. It's that 83-yard touchdown I caught against the Rams yeah. in my first playoff game. You know, that kind of established the uh, confidence that the team had me going forward. Because the next year against the uh, Washington Redskins, I caught that pass from Clinton Longley. They called my number in that situation. Then the year following that, you know, the Hail Mary and all that. Uh, but that 83-yard touchdown was a situation where, you know, Roger, I'm in a huddle with Bob Hayes. I'm an undrafted free agent. Here's the Olympic gold medal winner, Bob Hayes, next to me in the huddle. And Roger told Bob Hayes to run on, uh, line up on the right side to run a post pattern. He told me to line up on the left side to run a post pattern. And last thing Roger said, Drew, I'm going to you all the way. I'm thinking, Bob Hayes is sitting here. You're going to me making 14-5. I'm saying, oh, my. But anyway, uh, Roger threw that around the post pattern. I saw double coverage. I didn't think he was going to throw it. But he threw it uh, and got past uh, Eric Wright and Steve Priest. Uh, excuse me, Eric, uh, Eddie McMillan and Steve Priest. And I caught it at the 50 and took it in the end zone. The big deal about that, guys, is that it gave me confidence that I could play in the National Football League. Because after that game, riding home with my late brother, Moose, uh, I uh, told him, I said, Moose, if I could stay healthy, I think I could have a career in the NFL. So making that play in that playoff game at that time on national TV gave me the confidence that I can do other things and have success in the NFL. So that's the biggest play for me. Well, and it definitely worked, Drew. All signs pointing toward a gold jacket coming up next year and a bronze bust in Canton. Long overdue, but better late than never. And check us out every Friday morning because, Drew, you're going to be a fixture. Anytime Shireen's <laughs> on, they find a way to play that highlight. And now we know he finally admitted it, folks. He pushed Nate Wright. <laughs> I finally have closure after 45 years. Congratulations, Drew. <laughs> Congratulations. All right, we'll take a quick break. More PFT Live coming right after this. All right, Friday edition of PFT Live continues. And really, I mean, we just finished the interview with Drew Pearson, and here it is. And there it is, and he admitted the shove. And, he, you know, he said, if I shoved, if I really wanted to shove him, uh, I really would have. I mean, it, it, it's a healthy shove that sent Nate Wright flying, but it uh, doesn't matter. It's only a penalty if they call it. That leads to today's draft, the most controversial calls, the most controversial plays in NFL history inspired by the thing that I have to see multiple times every Friday when Shireen's on with that Staubach jersey hanging in the background. Shireen, ask me the trivia question, and we'll decide who gets the first pick. What color is blue, Mike? No, who is the Cowboys' all-time leading receiver? Yards and catches. All-time leading receiver. Yards and catches. All-time leading receiver. Yards and catches. My goodness. Is it Michael Irvin? Is it, it is Michael Jason Irvin? Witten. Uh, Jason Witten. Oh, Jason Witten. Oh, trick question. Trick question. We're talking about receivers and 88s and whatnot. Yes, well, that makes yeah. sense. Jason Witten's up there high on the all-time catches and yardage list uh, for all players, regardless of position. All right, you get the first pick. Do you know who the TD leader is for the Cowboys? Jason Witten is, is one Michael off Irvin? of that mark. It's Jason. It is Des is it, Bryant. Is it Michael Irvin? 
Oh, Des Bryant. No. Des Bryant. Amazing. Uh, considering they didn't throw to him the last three years he was there, it's amazing. All right. You get the first pick. <laughs> I get the first pick on the most controversial plays. There are so many ways you can go with this, but I think you have to go with the immaculate reception, which stands as one of the greatest plays in NFL history. And it was only controversial because of the rule back then, which has since changed, that two offensive players could not touch the ball at the same time. And, of course, the Raiders contend that Frenchie Fuqua touched the ball, and I don't see how it's physically possible that he could have touched this ball. Uh, but that's what they contend to this day, that they won that game. And, of course, the Steelers ended up upsetting them in the final seconds uh, as Franco Harris carried to, to the end zone. And the Steelers' owner at that time, Art Rooney, was actually in the elevator at the time. He had conceded that the Raiders were going to win the game, so he went on down to the sideline to console the team and gets out of the elevator and says, hey, what happened? Well, that happened. So they were still talking about whether it was a controversy or not. At least they still are in Oakland and I guess now in Las Vegas. I, I never saw that aspect of it as controversial, though, because it's so obvious to me that it didn't hit Frenchie Fuqua first. And what a dumb rule that was in the first place. It was a dumb that, rule. That that you can't have an offensive, an eligible receiver. It's one thing if it's an ineligible receiver. This, that's still the rule. You can't have an offensive lineman reach up and bat the ball to a, an eligible receiver. But an eligible receiver can't touch the ball before another teammate catches it. It's ridiculous. But even then, the ball ricochets off the Raiders player's shoulder pad. I, I, I never. I, to me, the bigger controversy is, does the ball touch the ground? When, when Franco Harris scoops it up, because there's no shot of that. Uh, and uh, that is forever resolved by the fact that they have a statue of Franco Harris making that catch at the Pittsburgh International Airport, and the ball isn't touching the ground, so there's the proof. The ball did not touch the ground when he made that catch, but that is one of the all-time great plays. But to me, the stakes weren't as high because the Steelers didn't go on to win the Super Bowl that year. It would be two more years. I go with the same team on the wrong side of the bad call, on the wrong side of the controversial call, 20 years after the fact, 2001, division around playoffs, the snow globe game, the epic final game ever played at the Patriots Stadium before they moved to Gillette, the tuck rule game where, where Charles Woodson hits Tom Brady, the ball comes out, and it looks like a fumble, it feels like a fumble, anything anyone ever knew about football up until that point directed it to the outcome of a fumble, and then that's the night that we learn about the tuck rule, where... And, and it was a proper application of the rule and, uh, until the ball is tucked back into the, the gut of the quarterback when he's in that throwing motion. If the ball comes out, it's an incomplete pass. So it was a bad rule that was applied correctly to the chagrin of Raiders fans, and they eventually changed the rule like more than 10 years after the fact so they could get fully clear of the controversy. You don't want to change it right away and admit what a dumb rule it was, but it was the proper application of a bad rule. Well, Mike, I was sitting in a, a sports bar in St. Louis because I was covering a Rams game uh, the next day, a playoff game, and I immediately said, that's the tuck rule, that's the tuck rule, and everybody's looking at me like, what are you talking about the tuck rule? But it had happened earlier in the season, and I can't tell you now who, who it happened to earlier in the season, but I had seen it earlier in the season enough to know that that play was going to be overturned. Yes, and that was number two on my list, one of the most controversial plays in NFL history. And I'm going to go to, of course, God, there's so many, but I'm going to go back to 2014, did Dez catch it or not? And the, the, that rule, again, is another one that was changed, and now we say yes, if it was applied to this year, 
that was a catch that Des made at the one-yard line. Uh, late in that game, it was a fourth down play uh, with a little over four minutes to play. Now, I have argued with Cowboys officials over the years that the Cowboys still would not have won that game, even if they had scored a touchdown from the one-yard line, because there was too much time for Aaron Rodgers. He would have gone back down, which he did. He ran out the clock, but they would have gone back down and, and scored and won that game. Maybe they would have, maybe they wouldn't have. That's what I argued, that the Packers still would have won that game. But applied to today's rules, Dad's caught that ball. And I think it was a huge controversy. At least it was a huge controversy here and remains a controversy today. Hey, Shireen, based on the rules that were enforced at the time, I think he caught that ball. One of the things I've always argued is there was not sufficient video evidence to overturn the ruling on the field. And the ruling was made. You saw the official right there looking right at it. You have to have indisputable visual evidence. They've changed the clear and obvious since then that the, the ruling on the field was incorrect. You do not have the evidence to overturn the judgment exercised by the official in that moment that he made the catch. That was my argument then, and it's still my argument. Old rules, new rules, any rules, that's a catch. That should have stood, regardless of what Aaron Rodgers would have done with his opportunity. And it was an excellent throw by Tony Romo. Not as good of a throw, though, as the one Roger Staubach made to Drew Pearson before he pushed <laughs> Nate right down. All right, the next one for me, and I'm surprised it's still on the board after three picks. The the play that changed the rules to a point where they didn't know how to enforce the rules and now we're back to where we were two years ago the Saints Rams NFC championship game debacle the missed pass interference call the reaction to that deafening the NFL's effort to try to address that situation last year completely and totally inadequate and now we are exactly where we were that donut hole exists again it can still happen that you can have the officials miss a blatant incident of pass interference and there is no way to fix it within the rules. Now, you could have Al Riveron open up the pipeline like he should have done at the time. And even though the rules don't allow the head of officiating to say to the referee, I think you should drop a flag. I'm very Machiavelli when it comes to getting it right. I don't care what the process is. Just get it right. And I'd like to think if they're ever encountered with something like that again, without a rule in place to fix it, they use that pipeline from 345 Park Avenue to the game site and say, drop the flag and call it interference to avoid that from happening again. And I think their attitude is something like that's only going to happen once every 100 years. It'll be somebody else's problem by the time it ever happens again. Yeah, and all the plays we're talking about, Mike, are in the playoffs, which is why they're so significant. And, and you know, you have the Fail Mary and you have the Vinny Testaverde helmet ball crossing the goal line there on fourth down. You have a lot of those plays, but the plays we were talking about are so significant because they eliminated one team and allowed the other team, in many cases, to go on and win a championship. And and it didn't happen for the Rams to win the championship, but I think the Saints still feel like if they could have gotten to the Super Bowl, they had a chance to win the Super Bowl. So, yes, that one was very high on my list. I actually had it at number two and, and shifted gears and did the Dez, did he catch it or not, since we were kind of on the Cowboys track. But my, my third choice is going to be the 1979 playoff game between Houston and Pittsburgh, and Mike Renfro has become something of a friend of mine, and, and uh, he still says he catches, caught it against Pittsburgh. It looked like he caught a touchdown. Of course, there was no replay back then. The officials didn't signal one way or another whether he made a touchdown or not. They consulted and said it was an incomplete pass. 
that he didn't get both feet down. It's very obvious that he got both feet down. It would have tied the Steelers in the second half. Steelers went on to win that game and, of course, won a Super Bowl uh, in the championship game. But I think the Oilers would have had a good chance to win a championship if they could have gotten that catch. Maybe they lose that game, but we'll never know. But Mike Renfro definitely got both feet down. Yeah, that was the second straight AFC championship game between the Oilers and the Steelers back when that was one of the great rivalries in all of football. And the Steelers, if I recall correctly, easily beat them on like a snowy, slushy, icy day the year before, right? But it was that next yes. year where the Oilers got screwed, and there were multiple bad calls or at least questionable calls in that game. All right, last one for me, and there's still a lot I can go with, and I can't believe yeah. – I can't believe I, I you know what I've I've exhausted my lifetime limit of talking about the Hail Mary play and because there's nothing that I'm ever going to say that's going to change it. So I'm going to go I'm going to go with the Music City Miracle. Uh, that's one that's still you know, you still see that highlight of Frank Wycheck throwing the ball across the field to Kevin Dyson. And it still looks like a forward pass, even though everyone insists it wasn't. And that that's what it was such a stunning moment. I remember it's one of those. Very rare NFL. I know exactly where I was when that happened because it was unbelievable that the then Titans found a way to pull a rabbit out of the hat and beat the Bills in advance in the postseason. But it's still, when you look at it, it still looks like a forward pass, not a lateral, uh, Shireen. Yeah, and a, another playoff one I think we have to mention, Mike, is the Bert Emanuel catch, which changed, led to change rules that the Buccaneers likely would have beaten the Rams in that championship game. Uh, if that play had been correctly called, it was applied to the rules then, but I'm glad the rule has changed on what a catch is. It, it only took him 20 years to get that rule right, though, inspired by the Bert Emanuel play. All right, let's take a break. More PFT Live to come right after this. Coming Monday, PFT Live moves to Peacock in the live two-hour window. The re-air will continue on NBCSN, but even bigger news coming in September, PFTPM which is for now a periodic, whenever I feel like doing it, afternoon podcast. It becomes a weekday, one-hour program, and Shereen Williams will be involved. I am looking forward to that. You may not be, but I am looking forward to that, wrapping up the day in football multiple days per week with Shereen Williams as the co-host. So that's coming in September. Shereen, are you ready? I am ready, Mike, ready to debate you. And we always have stuff to happen during the day, so it's going to be fun to talk about all those things that happen uh, in a day of football, and on Monday we get to talk about Sunday football and Monday night football, and uh, we could have football every day, uh, especially if the colleges end up not playing. Yeah, there's plenty of stuff that is always going on throughout the day in the National Football League. We track it at profootballtalk.com, but we'll be talking about it in the mornings on PFT Live and then in the evening on PFTPM coming in September only to Peacock. Download Peacock. Go get Peacock. If you have any questions about Peacock whatsoever, Florio at ProFootballTalk.com. I'll try to answer them. Keyword try. Shireen, great work as always. Everybody have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Good.